Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode number 62 of the Weekly Word Podcast. This podcast, as you all know, is sort of a long-form discussion built around ultra-endurance sports. And the difference there is it's not just ultra-endurance marathons, it's ultra-endurance triathlons, it's ultra-endurance cycling, running, swimming, or a combination of all of them. It's ultra-endurance with regards to what we do in our daily lives and how busy we are. That's an endurance event in itself. It's ultra-endurance in how we approach it from a mindset standpoint and a nutrition standpoint and a hydration standpoint. And although this podcast is primarily geared towards the athletes I work with, my hope is that the discussion and insights that we talk about in this podcast go way beyond that. That is my goal in coaching, to help others become fit, connected, and happy in their daily lives via endurance training, and adventures, and races, and experiences. We want to do that in a healthy manner so that you can repeat these these incredible sensations and these incredible training weeks and the incredible feelings you get from feeling fit and connected. That allows it to be sustainable, and sustainable means it's a lifestyle opportunity, and it keeps you healthy fit and injury free and as we've talked about so often on this podcast that you're able to take on adventures of a bigger magnitude that have always intrigued you and that create curiosity for you or that you feel would really challenge you or awaken a part of your personality that you've never had a chance to explore. I mean, like I've said before, I want to help you set goals on the outer boundary of what you can imagine is possible, and then working with you to systematically pursue those goals in that healthy and sustainable manner. So episode 62, what are we going to talk about today? I have a variety of shorter topics this week because I feel as though last week was quite long, but the feedback was really positive on having Tommy on and discussing his Ultraman race um, and his experiences from that. So I hope that hour and 50 last week went by pretty quickly as you were listening to it because it was an interesting topic, that hour plus that I had Tommy on. So this week, we're going to talk a little bit about all kinds of different aspects of endurance. We're going to talk about um, small chain ring work on the bike and why we do it and why it's so important and what the desired outcomes are of that type of training. With that, we're also going to start talking about or we talk about how we're starting to gradually insert more and more zone four and max effort intervals, short ones, but surely more and significantly part of the training now as we are progressing into the season. Why we go to zone four, why not zone three, and what the desired outcomes are there. We're going to talk about um, repeating training plans. I have athletes all the time that wonder, 
well, wait a moment, I saw this two, three weeks ago, how come we're doing it again? And I sort of dive into why that's necessary and why progression needs to go via the proper steps in court, according to my philosophy and coaching approach. Now, of course, we've talked in the past about wedge weeks and things coming up, and there it makes more sense that the athlete is okay with repeating the plan. But when they see a training plan and I feel as their coach that they haven't graduated from that level of fitness yet, and by graduating I mean that they haven't done all the workouts or they haven't done some of the key um, markers or breakthrough workouts of that training phase, yes, then things will repeat themselves. I talk about um, turning off your devices for a week. And this is less about going on feel, although that's a great component of that. And I'm a big advocate of remaining connected to what it feels like in the training. I just think it's important to turn it off every now and then for a week or two or even a month. And it's the beginning of March. Today is actually March 1. So it would be um, a great way to add that as a goal or as a challenge to ourselves in this month for maybe a week or two weeks or even the whole month or a variety of the, a a, a bigger part of the month by the time you hear this, to just turn it all off. Why, the value of it and so forth. And then lastly, I talk a little bit about finding fitness versus going fast. I'm a big believer in the pyramid concept and creating a platform, so I think many of you can understand what I'll be talking about with regards to, first, we want to find an incredible fitness level. We're not looking for fast, we're looking for fitness. We're not looking for fast, we're looking for the proper foundation and adaptations. Because as you'll hear me talk about in there, it's less about learning how to go fast and then searching for fitness. It's more important or it's um, a lot easier to start with fitness and then gradually become faster. So that's episode 62 for this week. I hope you all enjoy it. I'd love to get your feedback. I continue to really appreciate the emails and insights that you send me and questions. And please don't hesitate to send me some um, insight with regards to what you would like to see, who you would like to see me talk to, or what type of athlete, or what type of non-athlete even. I have another athlete doing 550Ks in five days on five Hawaiian islands next week. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that today as well. But um, depending on how it goes from and how he's feeling, maybe we can get him on the podcast Um, in the next few weeks as well to share his insights and learnings from that incredible journey that he will go on on March 8th. So there it is. Enjoy the podcast and thank you as always for listening. I often have athletes comment to me that the plan either isn't diverse enough or looks similar to a plan a few weeks ago or even a few months ago. And I definitely do not hide the fact that I repopulate the same workouts from many weeks ago if that phase wasn't successfully completed. What that means is is that I see many athletes that have pretty minimum, not minimum, but a pretty low volume, steady build that we're working on 
in their plans, and I notice that they're not even completing that. So until they complete that, we will, or I will have them, go through that cycle a few times. There's no reason to jump ahead into bigger fitness and wanting to see the epic training weeks, if we want to call it that, if we're not even doing the weeks that are maybe uh, 60% of that, 50% of that. In order to build to those epic weeks, we need the, the setup weeks, the setup months to be done properly. And yeah, they, yeah, they really look boring or not boring, but they're repetitive for sure. I've seen that workout before. I've seen that swim workout before. I've seen that bike ride before. I've seen this week before. But you didn't do the week last time or complete it. You missed a few swims or a few runs or a few bikes or maybe even all of that. And so, of course, I would like you to graduate from that phase of training before we move to the next phase of training. We don't want to skip ahead chapters in the book. It's not that type of reading. There's definitely books out there where you can plug in, open a chapter, open a page, and just start reading. And the shorter, um, non-connected chapters, that's fine. Um, But this is a book that grows upon itself. And so going back to the original question with regards to why repeat it? Well, in order to repeat it, we need to have those um, adaptations. We want that observation. We want that healthy build. And of course, the observation is limited because in some cases, athletes have not only seen this once or twice before, but they've also maybe seen it last season or two years ago. But As we progress as athletes and you're becoming more familiar with this process, we go through these phases quicker, but that still means you have to do every part of the phase and move before we move to the next chapter, before we move further down or further into that book. The story doesn't make sense. Your body will not build itself properly, injury-free, and have the adaptations we're looking for if we jump ahead too quickly. And yes, different people, different athletes have different adaptations for sure. And some move through phases quicker, others move through phases slower. But that doesn't mean we skip things or at least see how your body adapts in that phase. Until we do it, we don't know. And so those are the aspects of coaching that, I mean, it might sound pretty, not boring or pompous on my behalf that you just have to do it and deal with it, but it's more, I need to see that the phases are being done in order to move on to the next phase. And when you're not completing the workouts, even in these early stages, we need to make adjustments, whether that's lifestyle adjustments, whether that's planning and time management adjustments, whether that's race expectation and outcome adjustments, whether that's season planning adjustments. And all that goes into part of the coaching experience in order for me to adjust. Well, 
Now we're on six weeks in a row of me modifying or adjusting the weeks or taking a look at some of the, this phase. And for the last six weeks, it's been, you know, only partial weeks of training. Well, clearly six weeks is a good insight with regards to this athlete can't maintain these hours. So let's have a conversation. What's going on? Did we bite off more than we can chew on expectations or the race distance or the outcome or the adventure, the desired goals? Maybe. Are we going through a busy work phase? Is there other lifestyle things that are just in this current few months, this quarter, and therefore it was unexpected and we're falling short? Or is it that the body just can't handle this yet. Maybe I, as the coach, made the mistake of thinking the, the athlete is ready for this phase of training, and they're not yet. Um, they might need longer at the previous stage. So phase, excuse me. There is so much in here, but the bottom line point I'm making with this um, input here is that for my athletes, or for all of you, even if you're not my athletes, as you plan your season, as you plan your training, execute the desired outcome and the plan for the week first and successfully and see how you're doing it and absorbing it and managing it before you jump to the next planning phase as well as growth phase with regards to your endurance and your aerobic capacity and strength and so forth. And so my, I repeat weeks. I absolutely repeat training weeks and training phases. If the athlete is not completing them successfully, why would I move on? That's my question to the athlete. And I would ask that same question to any one of you. Why move on until we're not fully completing where we are currently? I would encourage everybody to go a week if you can, even two or 10 days, but minimum a week. Every now and then, maybe once a quarter, or if you can, once a month, depends on how you train, to go without any training devices, without a stopwatch, without a heart rate monitor, without a power meter, without anything. Just go. Swim without sets, without a clock, without anything, without knowing the yardage, really. I mean, of course, you can count. But stay connected in the pool and pay attention to things that you usually wouldn't pay attention to when you're looking at a clock or have expectations of speed along with the effort you're putting forth. Remember, all our training is a perception in our mind based off of, well, this feels hard. It should give me this result. It should show this watts or not. It should show this running pace or not. It should show this swim pace or not. If you're going completely easy and the paces, wattages, and speeds are um, a lot lower, slower, then you don't care as much because you know, based off your perception, you're going easy. You're not looking for that outcome. Of course, the best days and the rest um, taper brings about days where going easy surprises you or brings about better wattages, speeds, paces, and so forth. But that's something different. My point here is go a week or 10 days without speed, watts, heart rate on the bike. Just ride. 
Just ride on feel. Even just wear a time of day. Just bring your phone in order to know what time of day it is. And run for sure. Go a week or two weeks without looking at pace, without looking at heart rate, without looking at anything. Just how long you were out there. I see so many training plans, training updates. People cannot take off their measuring devices. And the value of it, you will all notice the value of it once you do it for a few days, five days, seven days, 10 days, hopefully two weeks. I know people who've turned it off and stayed off for months because, again, it's all relative. We're, um, we're being pulled in, lulled in, sucked into these devices that tell us our progress, but that's all relative to what we're comparing that progress to. I could give you examples of things that that progress is looks fantastic versus, but then I can also show you people and athletes and training plans and progressions where your progress looks awful. It's all relative. Anyway, turn it off for a week. Turn off lap swimming for a week on your Garmin watch. Turn off Swift and a running a measurement for a week. Notice it's all about just riding, running, and swimming or a combination of all them. I guarantee you, you will feel pretty good if you go out someday this weekend, whether the weather's nice or you're indoors, you swim for a bit, let's say just 45 minutes. You get out, you get on your bike a bit, let's just say an hour and a half, no wattages, no heart rates, no paces, no distances. And then you run 45 minutes or an hour. So you basically did a triathlon, but you did it all blind. You did it all on feel. You'll be surprised how good you'll feel after, right? Of course, you can go hard and you won't feel as good, but you won't go too easy. You'll go just on feel, You'll just go and listen and pay attention to your body. And afterwards, you're going to feel really good. It's a remarkably refreshing, invigorating, motivating process. Of course, if you can do it outside, it's even better. But it's uncomfortable at first. It takes a bit to let go of all the devices and measuring. And we're constantly curious. Well, wow, I feel pretty good. I wonder what pace I'm running or... Wow, my legs are really clicking on the bike. I feel really comfortable sitting on the bike and powerful and connected to my pedal stroke. I wonder what wattage or pace I'm pushing. No, just go without it for a week or 10 days. Try that. I'd love to hear from all of you, whether you're my athletes or not, that you did this for a week and what you observed. Let me know. I'd love to discuss it here on the podcast. I'd love to see it in some training peaks notes. Or if you're my athletes, you send me an email saying, I'd like to do that for a week. Can you do that in my training peaks where for a week I have no instructions, no guide. I'm just going to put in afterwards, after seven or 10 days, after writing it down, let's say on a notebook, in a notebook or on a piece of paper or wherever on your phone without logging in for a week or seven or 10 days. Just let me know so that I know you're not off the the grid, the plan, you've quit my coaching, but do it. And I'd love to see what you observe. 
I'd love to get your inputs because I am quite confident and I've done it myself quite often and I've done it with athletes quite often, but I'd love to hear more input on what you observed, what you noticed, how much you enjoyed it, or many of you might hate it. Many of you might be real quantitative self type of people where you're always measuring and looking at numbers and processing that. That's fine too, but there's still some value for you the quantitative self in that because you will then notice things that you don't usually notice. And guess what? I guarantee you, you might add those values and those observations and those measurements to your future measured self. So try that. Let me know how it goes, please. I'd be curious. Many athletes wonder why I recommend so much small chain ring work for them on the bike, especially at this time of year. Although we are about to approach March and so things are going to start switching over to more power-based, muscular endurance-based, not necessarily strength-based, but remaining with pedal pressure as we're going to start increasing the time during intervals, during focused work versus just zone two. But Back to small chain ring, and I think I've discussed this before on the podcast, but just a quick reminder. Small chain ring really helps us improve our pedal stroke, and it has a double whammy effect of increasing our oxygen consumption while doing it at an easier resistance. So it's similar to the oxygen aerobic uh, physiological effect on the lungs, and efficiency as downhill running is. You increase your leg turnover and you require a little bit more oxygen without the muscular load that you would do, let's say, for uphill running or cycling in a bigger gear. So on a bike, um, 85, maybe 90 or higher cadence, usually flat roads in order to keep the resistance easy, and you're spinning away. And at first, it seems a little uncomfortable, and especially for those that are not familiar with it, their heart rate will shoot up when they're doing higher cadence because, as you can imagine, it's an inefficiency. So when we're inefficient in a motion, whether that's running, swimming, cycling, whatever it is, rowing, um, we tend to need more heartbeats in order to provide oxygen to the working muscles. So... As we get more proficient in it of just holding that cadence, we become more efficient in it, which means it doesn't require as much tax on the body, heartbeats. And within that, so we have that aerobic aerobic effect and we become more physically fit, if you want to describe it that way, from a heart rate and an aerobic meaning oxygen delivery, consumption, and so forth aspect, as well as mechanically, we're learning easier, cleaner, stronger pedal circles. And what does that mean? By going at a higher cadence, lower resistance, we're teaching the body to fire um, that muscular connection and that muscular rhythm or those steps better, right? You're going through the checklist mentally, you got to figure that the body is going through the checklist, the firing of that pedal stroke faster. 
Now it's doing it with less resistance. Hopefully you have good pedal pressure, good connection to the pedal, to the cleat within the shoe throughout the pedal circle, not just on your down motion, if you want to call it from, let's say, 12 o'clock to 6 o'clock. We also want to have somewhat good connection from 6 o'clock back up to 12 o'clock. Now, of course, in a good pedal stroke, that up motion is facilitated by the down motion of the other leg. That's our most powerful part of our pedal stroke, the down motion. You can do this just by having zero resistance, let's say on a trainer, and you notice just dropping your leg, the weight of your leg facilitates the upsweep of the other leg. But many of us, many beginner cyclists, um, rely too much on that down force of the pedal stroke versus sweeping and facilitating that down force with the other leg as it sweeps across from 5 o'clock, let's say, to 8 o'clock, and then gradually helps the down sweep with a pull up, um, a light gentle pull up, one that you don't really feel from 8 o'clock to 12 o'clock. That's what we call rounding out the pedal stroke. And what is interesting, when you feel that a few times, you really notice how much more powerful you are, um, not only in the other leg's downstroke, but in maintaining good power from, let's say, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, over the pedal stroke, over the top of 12 o'clock to about 3 o'clock. And especially once you start pushing bigger wattages, bigger resistance, bigger paces or faster paces, this will become quite important because we will run out of the big muscle power of pushing down and facilitating equal power throughout the pedal circle means your overall load, your overall force that you generate will be higher over a longer distance. So small chain ring <clears throat> facilitates not only great oxygen consumption, fitness, and efficiencies, and we become more proficient in our pedal stroke with technique, but it also helps you fire better as a cyclist. Now, there's a lot of physiology behind that with regards to um, faster firing expansion and contraction of the muscle versus slower contraction, right? Because that's like people who ride a bigger gear and push more force, but less circles, less cadence over a distance versus higher cadence, less force, what's better. Now there's subtle differences for everybody, what works best for them. But most seem to find, if you take the general populace of elite cyclists, they seem to fall into the upper 80s, low 90s category for most efficient pedal stroke. And in order to do that well, we use this time of year as well as um, in all time of year with regards to drills, with regards to single leg drills, with regards to high cadence work in order to, and low resistance in order to help facilitate the firing of those muscles properly. Now, I brought up the shoot, um, doing the checklist, the mental checklist. The body recognizes neuromuscularly that, that checklist and that the 10 motions it's going through and how it wants to fire. 
And in order to break that up, in order to make that more efficient, more technically sound, we need to do it with less resistance and sometimes even slower to observe what we're doing and then speed it back up. But small chainring is very, very important to make us more efficient and to make us more powerful. And many forget that until we learn how to do the motion cleanly, efficiently, we can't add more resistance. Um, the best cyclists in the world, whether in triathlon, whether in pro cycling, whether in mountain biking, are all able to spin a big gear, which means they're able to do that 88 to let's say 95 cadence on the open road over a variety of terrain, pushing a very big gear, let's say in the big chain ring, and maybe not quite all the way in the 11, um, but probably in the 12, 13, 14 range. And they do that with a low tax cost on the body and a very clean um, fluid pedal stroke where they have power throughout the circle. So in order to be better at triathlon, to be better at cycling, small chain ring has a great effect on our cycling motion as well as our fitness motion. I hope that explains small chain ring work, which I have a lot of athletes do at this time of year, and I'm a big proponent. Me, myself, as I'm getting ready for my events this year, I will probably not get out of the small chain ring until a few weeks before um, either a triathlon or any type of cycling event. I like to stay in the small chain ring um, mostly year-round because a lot of the work that I'm doing in other aspects, whether that's in running, whether that's in strength work, um, is also power-focused, strength-focused, that using my cycling time to spin helps me not only for my running, but obviously, as I described, for my cycling. Um, running and on trails, going long, a lot of it is hiking, is power-based running uphill. Our foot speed and our cadence is very slow, and we're using very big muscles that require a lot of energy as well as oxygen consumption and so forth. So when I'm on the bike, spinning away feels really, really good. I've had a lot of great feedback on the Tommy interview last week, and many were quite impressed with not only his adventure, but also the journey he took in order to achieve what he did with regards to Ultraman. And it brought back an interesting story and a question that I've gotten from many athletes over the years, and that is, well, what does it take, what is the true athletic performance of going along, going steady, and many define that as going slow all day, versus your ability to go really fast for a shorter period of time, right? And I actually had a bunch of buddies um, a few years ago give another buddy of mine a hard time who had just finished Ultraman in Hawaii, and he's one of the founders of the sport with regards to Ultraman, one of the conceivers of that distance and so forth, and for sponsors, as a matter of fact. And then a bunch of younger, more... Um, uh, muscular, powerful, faster, sprintier type of athletes um, just sort of roll their eyes at his achievements because it's like, well, 
the commentary was, well, anybody can go slow all day. And this is a, a larger debate that often comes up. Um, and what I would like to add to it and what I added back then is that it takes fitness to be fast. So first, for many of us and all of us listening on this as an ultra endurance discussion, you can't get fitness and endurance from training fast, but you can get fast from training fitness and endurance. And so it's our entire pyramid conversation. It's our entire zone two conversation, but also understand the things that you're learning and that your body is adjusting to and applying while you're going along all day, while you're learning to go slow for many days in a row, um, are all applicable to going faster. As you've all heard me say plenty of times before, we can always speed up. It's easier mentally and physically to speed up. Um, Posture changes, form changes, technique changes, but slowing down is quite hard. Mentally, things, the world, everything moves by you slower. Competitors um, often don't slow down with you, so you have this perceived slowdown as well, which is demotivating, as well as physically. We land differently on the ground when we run, when we slow down, we land, um, we cycle differently when we have to slow down. The coasting and the lighter pedal pressure is awkward. It's hard to swim much slower because it not only makes you heavier in the water, you lose your leverage of your swimming and your breathing pattern is off and so forth. There's of course a level we can all slow down to, but then things get awkward. So my, my debate there is more about building a fitness level that you actually have the ability to go long many days in a row, even if that's slow. But there's something to be said about that ability versus going fast for shorter periods. I'm not saying one is better than the other, but if your interest is endurance, ultra endurance, anything longer than four or five hours, you should be thinking about going along many days in a row. It brings me back to my current training. I'm getting ready for a variety of events this summer, and my current training, whether it's for my 100K in May or longer events after that, my current training is I'd rather get myself in shape by going along and slow many days in a row and gradually tighten the noose, um, tighten the screws around my training so that when I need to go faster, it's more readily, more frequently available. What does that mean? What that means is currently I'm looking to get, let's say, those thousands of cycling miles, those hundreds of running miles, and those 10,000s of yards of swimming in, in order to just create the platform. And we all know the zone two discussion, blah, blah, blah. We've been there. But um, as I then go through those miles, Every now and then things come up, whether it's the terrain or whether it's a time limit or it's a prescription that I need to speed up. 
and that gradual um, speed up increased effort, um, higher quality work that just comes up in random, not with a prescription, not with a purposeful outcome of that workout, gradually increases my tolerance and my ability to push stronger. So that when I need it to be there, when I'm ready for intervals, when I'm ready to do some VO2 max or some higher quality, higher intensity work, it's not quite that unfamiliar. It came to me in my training quite naturally. I was out for a run and there was a hill and instead of stopping immediately and walking or hiking up it, I surged and attacked it until I felt, not heart rate, not pace, I felt it was unreasonable to continue this effort in, and then slow down to walk because I felt it was unreasonable to hold this effort because I still have many miles to go and I don't want to burn those matches. But all those subtle little increases in speed, all those subtle little surges, all those times we do strides at the end of a run workout in order to clean up our um, cadence and our posture and our form and increase our leg turnover without a lot of cost, all those little times they add up and they add up to that if you think about it at the end of weeks and months, there's quite a bit of quality in there that we can tap into. Many underestimate how often we actually work harder than just a chill aerobic zone. And so the point here with this piece is to understand that we'd rather build a huge level of fitness and then go faster. It's really hard to learn to go fast and then try to find fitness. The other aspect to keep in mind with regards to finding fitness and not looking for fast, or as I like to call it, find fitness, not fast, is this is Tommy's first approach into the ultra endurance world. Yes, he's done an Ironman. He's done an Ironman, and now he's done an Ultraman. So Usually, as many of you have heard on this podcast, I like to work with an athlete to reach their potential, whether it's an Ironman or other distances, where they have a few under their belt, three to five, in order to really start racing the event, to really start pushing the event. We're still learning so much in race in and um, doing an Ironman the first few times of pacing of the training of nutrition and hydration of the dynamics of putting all three together on a long day that it takes two or three of them to really understand how we want to race it best for ourselves and in the case of tommy with regards to ultraman i'm not sure if that came across on the podcast last time absolutely he finished he felt so good he started bugging for a workout less than 48 hours after and he started thinking, of course, where could I have gone faster? Um, or maybe I should have pushed harder. But we didn't want to jeopardize future, um, the future days in case, in this case, days one, two, and three, right? We didn't want to jeopardize days two and three or jeopardize day three, the double marathon, with doing things on the bike and the run on the swim that we're not familiar with. 
and that we haven't trained, nor that we had a strategy around, nor that we're familiar with. We were in completely uncharted territory. And his example is exactly the example that I talk about with so many of you, whether it's in Ironman racing or 100-mile runs or so on. I want to get you to a fitness level. You, the athlete, should be looking to get to a fitness level where your steady is faster than what you were doing before or how you were approaching training and racing before. I want your new steady to be your new PR, right? If a steady Ironman with new fitness, better fitness, buys you 45 more minutes, that's a great sensation. We didn't have to push hard. We didn't have to surge. We didn't have to race. And we bought 45 minutes on new fitness, the same steady effort, right? Um, We've talked about on the podcast here before. It's not like the pros are working that much harder than the average age grouper. It's just that their steady is so dramatically faster than what our steady is. Now, I got a question the other day about this, and there is some um, suffering, racing, um, panting, enduring uh, pain in the pro field of racing. Don't get me wrong there, as well as at the front of the age group field. Um, That's because, and this is on a side note, that's because they are outside of their steady because they need to move forward or speed up to a place where they're catching people and racing people, right? And so you can imagine steady doesn't do anything for you when you are in a head-to-head competition. Steady does a lot for you if you are just racing the clock, right? If you're not racing for a podium spot or a placing or a paycheck and you're looking to improve steady, is going to have a great result for you because you can run relaxed, you can ride relaxed, you can ride efficiently and run efficiently. Your stride, your pedal stroke, your power, your everything, you're basically racing in a bubble. And that bubble could be in Siberia, could be in South America, could be in your garage, or could be on that Ironman course. You're just sticking to the numbers that the race plan and you had prior um, written out or envisioned or planned to hold. And therefore, whether there's competitors around you or not, it doesn't really matter, right? Um, and and I, I do say it with that a matter of fact of a way. Because, for example, if you're looking to break 10 hours or 12 hours in an Ironman, your training and your racing day should be non-distracted by any competitor out there on moving you, that little avatar, along the course, that map course, to in order to break 12 hours. Whether there's people drafting, whether there's people or a lot of people around you, whether there's this or whether there's that, that has nothing to do with your desired outcome of breaking 12 hours or breaking 10 hours. You should be steadily moving across terrain, swim, bike, run, in order to achieve that outcome. If your goal is to break 24 hours in a 100-mile race, who cares who's there with you? You have a time outcome. Now, this all gets thrown out the window with placing. 
And placing means you're taken out of steady and have to do the work in order to put yourself into a position in order to properly finish in a placing or in order to set yourself up in order to still race late in the race. And so when you look at some of the front leaders of an Ironman, whether that's in Kona or even the front runners in a 100-mile race or so forth, yes, it looks pretty effortless for them. Why? Because they are in control of their race. They're leading, they're running their pace, their stride, their effort, and of course they're more relaxed than the person in second or third or fourth or fifth trying to run them down, trying to get to second place and third place and shift the order of the play. They're out of their stride, out of their heart rate zone, out of their comfort zone, out of their steady and they are pushing beyond that. So that's painful. Yes, that absolutely is painful. And so in this case, for example, with Patrick Lang this year in Hawaii, he knew he was the fastest runner out there. He knew nobody else is running as fast as him. So when he had moved through the field on the bike, on the, excuse me, on the run, and put himself into first, he could relax. He knew his steady his past performance on that exact same course in pretty much the exact same conditions had net him a time faster than anybody by six or seven minutes. So now he was already at the front and he could just run relaxed. And as you all know from training and many of you from racing, when you're running relaxed, you're actually faster oftentimes um, than if you're running with a target in mind or a placing in mind because you're you're um less uh, you're a you're more relaxed and b you're you're um surging and slowing down and effort levels are not constantly changing um like when you're trying to reach a placing a person or get ahead right even if you are not a strong runner and you're at the front of a race, you're running out of your comfort zone. It's not like you're going to relax at that point because you know they're coming. You know you're not the strongest runner there, so therefore you're also in a painful state. So keep that in mind. I'm not sure how this um, got distracted into that, but I my, my goal for you is to understand that steady and fitness levels are very much tied together in that respect. And that also has me with another athlete who is racing this weekend, similar to what Tommy did, but that is somebody who's doing the Epic Five run. And that is 550Ks on all five Hawaiian islands. And he's doing it, I think, March 8th to the 12th or something like that. Um, so that's next week. And we're going to talk about it on the phone for a couple hours, um, I don't know about hours, but for a while um, in prep for this. But there, the same goal is out there as for Tommy. And that is managing the first few days well enough in order to finish the last two days, right? Uncharted territory. He's never run a 50K, let alone five of them in a row <laughs> on five Hawaiian islands so you have a time cut off in order to get to the logistics with moving to the next island in order to start in the morning 
Then it's also, of course, it's the Hawaiian Islands. It's hot, it's humid, and the terrain is quite hilly. So there is a lot going into this, and there's a lot of prep that's been happening for it. And he's been on the island for a little bit over a month now, training and racing. He did some small races, racing along the way. We use that as a training day, by the way. He had a 50K on the island um, in late January, I think it was. And what we did is that he uh, did the 50K, and then I think the next day I had him run another 20 miles. And the day before the race, I think I had him run 10 miles or something to compact that um, simulation and that effect and that recovery and how it feels get up the next day and run 20 or 30. Um, I wanted him to feel that and he's been doing great and I feel pretty good about him doing quite well over these five days, 550Ks. Um, not saying that he's going to like in any type of way win, but that he's going to do quite well in completing it. Again, uncharted territory. So we're going to be super conservative on the first two, three days. And what that means is a lot of walking, a lot of hiking, a lot of fueling, a lot of hydrating, and just getting by. And if you're looking to be a hero, you're that on the last two days. Because nobody remembers your results of the first three days on an event like this. They all will remember you and your fellow competitors doing this, how well you did and how well you felt and how well you looked on those last two days, right? Um, and especially in something like this where you have the fifth day or like with MDS people that I work with, um, in their case, the seventh day is sort of a, a shorter stage, but the fifth and sixth days are the big ones. And the goal there is this, the, on the five day here, let's say this um, epic five, our goal will be to push a little on day four because mentally um, you have tailwinds at your back on the last day. You know it's the last day. You know when the sun goes down today, this will be over. And so it's a different sensation. So if we can make it through the first three days efficiently, um, of course it's taxing. Of course he'll be fatigued. Of course he'll be shelled. Of course he'll be sleepy and tired. But how deep that goes and what we still have available the next day, day four, that's where the work begins. That's where the discipline begins. That's where the commitment begins from the very first step on. And like I told with, said, did with Tommy and Ultraman, it's, it's about can you go faster? Of course, but you're saving every ounce of energy, every gear, every mile an hour, every surge that you could go faster. You're banking that for day four and five in this case for the Epic Five. And a lot of times I have athletes do that, whether it's for an Ironman, for a 100-mile run, a 200-mile run, a multi-day stage race, really envisioning and getting good about understanding what banking energy truly means. Banking energy is a huge psychological tool, not trick, but tool in order to know that you have reserves there because you you felt yourself saving them and you can save energy 
absolutely in our these unbelievably wonderful creations called our body. So that reinforces that psychology that you saved because you felt it, because you held back and you made a mental note right there. Well, I could have gone faster, but I'm saving it. So that come race day, come event day, come adventure days, expedition days, you can fall back onto those mental notes and remember, I saved some energy. This is where I'm feeling it. I feel pretty good or I'm going to tap into that now. And there's reserves in our body that are way beyond what any of us can imagine. And it's what I've also talked about on this podcast with regards to, you know, mindset and switching heads. And if we put a famous runner's head on um, our body, what would they still pull out of us, right? What's the delta there? And we've talked about that before, but... That's what we're looking for for these 550Ks. And of course, I'll give everybody an update on how Peter did in this case. But um, yeah, it should be fun to watch him do this. And just, again, learning uncharted territory, exploring self, going deep with inside oneself, um, opening doors to the mind, the spirit, and our physical limits that we didn't know we had until we're trained enough in order to do this type of adventure. Of course, you can imagine you can never do this type of adventure just out of the blue. So we need to train it. But then the culmination, the beauty of this entire ultra endurance world that we're in, the endeavors that we take on, is because in the training we really don't tap into these darker spots, not because they're dark, because they're negative, it's just because that we haven't shined the light on them yet. That's what comes out. And as I've talked about expanding the real estate in our mind, Opportunities like this 50, uh, these, this Epic Five and 550Ks on five Hawaiian islands, of course, it's an amazing experience and beauty and places and logistics and fun and stories. But there will also be plenty of time in there to go inside yourself and to learn about your physical limits and what, was, what you thought were physical limits that are no longer limits on what you thought you might delay or pause at and realize you can overcome mentally, that it's just a question of fueling in some cases to change your mood, some, get some calories in you, but also understanding I am going to do this. This isn't a question if, it's a question of how, and I'm going to keep putting one foot in front of the other and successfully completing every day of this 30 to 33 miles right? If, the, if there is no other outcome, but that I will, we become more creative, we become more resourceful, we become more convicted, and we become more committed to getting it done somehow. And that creativity that that creates, and that confidence that that creates is lifelong lasting. And that's, again, the beauty of ultra endurance training and racing and adventures and all the things we take on. And, and what many of you listening already understand and what you love about it so much and what it makes it, what makes it somewhat, I wouldn't call addicting, but it makes it 
us more curious and more curious and more curious to find out what else is out there, what other doors in our minds we can open, what other challenges we're capable of, and then again, training for that in order to put a safer um, approach, a more trained approach, a more controlled approach around some of these adventures. Because don't get me wrong, they are adventures, and some of them are quite dangerous, and some of them carry a lot of risk and we're out in the environment and open and in the mountains and there's a lot to that that we need to keep in mind and training allows us to put ourselves temporarily into those situations in order to learn more in order to experience more so that we can be safer and have more experience on what it's like to be in some of these remote difficult terrain, terrains, excuse me. Um, you can imagine how I feel about the desert for some of these athletes that I'm working with, but I've thought about it many times with the mountains and some of the terrain they're in. I mean, if you're doing a 200 mile run, you are in the most remote areas and mountain peaks in, in, in North America. And you know, in order to train for it, of course, we're not going that far or that remote because we're constantly coming, hopefully back home or back to a hotel or back to our car or back to our tent, something like that. But still, we're in some extreme environments where weather changes, where terrain changes, um, oftentimes alone. And so part of our training, part of what we do we, me being the coach, you being the athlete, and in some cases, me being the athlete as well, is to learn how to be aware and observe and apply and learn more being in those environments so that when we are in the further reaches of that um, remote environment, we have more and more experience to fall back upon. Now, that shouldn't make us overly confident we still have to be hyper aware, hyper um, observant with our surroundings because we are in nature and in some extreme nature. So again, I have no idea how I got pulled off into this <laughs> topic, but things to ruminate over. And lastly, this week, I want to talk a little bit about zone four. And many of you are probably saying, what? We went from zone two discussion to zone four suddenly? Well, we're starting to mix in more and more zone four heart rate and wattage and paces into our training. Because now that we're starting to have established a really good platform of zone two, I'm looking to sprinkle in for many of the summer racing early summer, late spring racing athletes, um, a healthy dose of zone four work. Now, I'm working on both ends of the spectrum there. We're doing zone two the majority of the time, and we're jumping to zone four as quickly as we can with limiting our time in zone three as much as possible in order to work on the other end of the spectrum. It is not yet time 
for many athletes, for some athletes, but many athletes to start working on longer zone three tempo intervals. I'd rather stimulate the system by shocking it into zone four work and working on the far end of the threshold, uh, VO2 max almost, which for heart rate purposes feels like a VO2 max effort. And why I'm bringing this up is because I'm starting to hear more and more from my athletes that are doing this or being prescribed this training, how they're struggling. They're struggling big time to hit zone four. And this is exactly where I started this many months ago. And that is understanding how hard zone four will get and how hard on hard days we need to go and how we want to prep for that physically and mentally. If we're sticking to our zones, if we're sticking to the prescription and getting our sleep and eating properly, I'll go into that in a moment, um, then it will take work, but you can, you have the ability, mind over body, to push yourself quickly into zone four. Now, in some cases, you're pushing very hard and you're blowing right through zone four, so then you might have to catch it on the back end by slowing down somewhat or lightening up a little bit on the pedal stroke. But we're having this discussion because many of you are struggling to get up to zone four. And if so, you're only there for a short period of time before your heart rate wants to come down. Well, guess what? You're tired. Not tired um, physically in an overreaching standpoint, but you're tired because you've created volume fatigue, not effort fatigue. And now we're starting to add effort, intensity, fatigue into the volume fatigue so things are quickly going to start changing and the body's going to fight you on it. Wait, 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 what are we doing? We just started getting used to this zone two go all day stuff. My metabolism is starting to adjust for that. My um, sensations and my RPE and how I feel these things is all starting to settle in. And now you're going to shock me into going from, let's say, an 845 mile into a 645 mile because we never even stopped at the sevens? What happened? Well, that's exactly what we want. And they're not very long. They're short intervals, which is another reason why it's hard to get up in there because it takes us longer to get up there. And once we're doing it for a while, it becomes easier to hold. But I'm pulling those intervals short enough so that A, there's not a lingering fatigue from that. And B, because I just want that short stimulus and then bring it back. We want to add some complexity into the zone two now. We want to add that the body is quickly able to recover despite some surges, despite some intensity, despite some high cost, high tax efforts back to zone two. That's a sign of fitness. The fact that you can hit zone four, zone five numbers and still recover back into zone two with a couple of pedal strokes or a half a mile or a mile later on a bike or half a mile later on a run and then settle back right into your aerobic go all day pace despite that surge, despite that short effort, that's an awesome sign. That's a sign that we're really, really starting to be able to handle that fitness. And what I talked about earlier in this podcast regarding the 
natural surges, the natural jumps in effort and because of terrain or environment and so forth. That also facilitates that somewhat. So again, what I always remind everybody of, 80% of the time at zone two means 20% of the time is higher than that. And that's a lot of hours if you truly put that time together. If you truly put that type of intensity together, can you find yourself, if you're doing a 14-hour training week, can you find yourself almost three hours of zone four work in that week? It's not easy to do. It's very hard. Um, but that's where we want to be. We want to start thinking about 80% of the time zone two, 20% of the time a significantly higher number than zone two. Zone three still doesn't give our body enough differentiation at this time of year. We need a lot of hours in that zone three to start using the platform that we're creating, but we're not there yet. And I will dive into that once it's time for that. But for now, we're starting to sprinkle in zone four work. Zone four is like strides are great on runs, short, explosive, 10 to 40 second hill repeats, really steep, but just not slowing down for the entire 10 to 40 seconds, just explosive power, not long enough again to not quickly recover from, right? On the bike, short surges up to, you know, high cadence, high wattage, meaning high gearing, which means hard gearing, and really spinning it up. I call those spin-ups sometimes. You start in a, in your big gear and you grind yourself from 50 cadence all the way up to 100 cadence, and then you shut it down, right? Um, swimming, we have a lot of sprints that we can build in there and hypoxic efforts to combine the muscular tax with the, um, the oxygen tax and it becomes quite difficult high intensity strong efforts mixed into some longer aerobic stuff so zone four work is what many are struggling with and that's what i just explained now tie into that a whole different aspect as we start increasing this need for zone four work our tax on our nutrition and fueling is become going to change we're not going steady, slow all day. We're now in, inserting like these high octane glycogen burning um, pieces into our training. So our carb requirements are starting to go up. And of course, our carb requirements were already pretty high just in general due to the hours that we train. But again, we're looking for aerobic work and we're doing that primarily on a fat consumption aspect. That does not mean I'm a proponent or not a proponent of um, high fat, low carb, and so forth. Um, I stay out of that debate. And um, yeah, that's all I'll say about that. But what we do need to be careful of, and this is in the aspect of training, is if we work too hard, and we're not going easy enough in the zone two training, we are often surprised despite the hours that we're training that we're not losing weight. And I've talked a little bit about regards to um, weight and training and so forth. But the interesting thing here is if we're training a tick too hard, we're not losing weight because we're always burning carbs. 
never going easy enough to burn fats properly, right? If we're using both engines too much and we prefer the carb, the glycogen, in, the high octane insert, then we're gonna use that some more, deplete those more, right? Um, and burn through those more and therefore have a need and desire for them more. Now, a lot of athletes out there are restricting their calories um, due to whatever reason that may be. And oftentimes calorie restriction means calories in the form of carbs. And so now you can see what happens there. So you're burning through the carbs that you do have. You shouldn't be burning through them because you're going too hard. And therefore now you're training too hard with low carbs because you're restricting your, your calories, which is mostly in the form of carbs. And that causes a ton of muscle damage. And that's where we want to be careful. Right? That's where we hurt the body. That's where we break down the body. And that's where we cause anything from injury to lack of training stimulus to lack of um, uh, uh, immune system weaknesses. So just be careful of that. Be sure to go easy enough on easy days, especially as these zone four things start creeping in and more and more quality starts creeping in. We need to make sure we're going easy enough on easy days because if we're going to tick too hard, we're not only not having the physiological response, we're going to have a nutritional response. And that nutritional response is not a good one because we want to be smart with regards to fueling the system. If we're going easy enough, plenty of fats in our regular diet and in our body to fuel this for a long time. And if we're going too hard, we're burning through things too quickly and therefore training too hard, burning too many carbs and therefore causing muscle damage if we're not then upping our carb intake. So just keep that balance in mind and keep that dichotomy in mind too. All right, I think that will be it for this week. Keep it right around the hour-ish mark. And I look forward to talking to you guys next week again on the podcast. This week, we had a variety of different topics and different ideas come in there. I have a few emails sitting in my email box with questions regarding Zone 2 some more. But I thought I'd give that a break this week. I know many of you um, continue to be interested in it. And I'm curious as to any other questions you may have or things that you would like me to discuss on this podcast. I mean, the important thing for me is to talk about questions that you may have in your training. I mean, the whole purpose of me talking on these podcasts is to answer the why that you may have with regards to your training, with regards to racing, with regards to ultra endurance nutrition and fueling and mindset and the approach. And if I can help answer some of those whys, because if you have them, if my athletes have them, I know many, many people have them out there. And that's what this is basically all about, to help you not only become better athletes, but smarter athletes, better prepared for your next training session, for your next big training week, or for your next big event 
and how you're going to go about training for it and how you're going to go about racing through it or completing it or taking on that adventure, getting better today than you were yesterday just by knowing more and hopefully then going out and applying it in your training and therefore being fitter, smarter, better, and stronger overall for it. So thank you all again for listening and for getting me 62 episodes into this podcast. And I'm still loving it and enjoying it. And I look forward to talking to you guys all next week and uh, gals as well, of course. And again, just think about the progression, not perfection, just progression. It's a process. And as we go down this process, as we take on this journey, there's so much more to be learned every time through this journey, every training day, every training session, every macro, micro cycle. It just makes you a better, stronger, more prepared person for anything that you're taking on. And as I talked about earlier in this podcast, what we do on these ultra endurance events and endeavors and adventures really makes us um, better prepared and have a more open mind to everything that happens in the world around us. All right, have a great week and I'll talk to you guys all next week. Thank you.